coming up on Economics Explored. Reflecting on the events of June, more energy would have been handy. So it was a cost of energy issue that created these extreme prices. So whether that energy came from renewables or from gas or from coal, any additional gigajoules or megawatt hours generated onto the system would have had downwards pressure on prices and and certainly would have helped. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 156 on Australia's national electricity market, the NEM. In June 2022, the NEM was suspended by the market operator for nine days. For a brief period, authorities were worried there would have to be widespread blackouts to balance supply and demand. My guest this episode explains what went wrong in June, and we talk about whether it could happen again. My guest is Andrew Murdoch, Managing Director of RK Energy, a Brisbane-based consulting firm specialising in energy projects. Andrew has a background in engineering, and he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to electricity. So stand by for a deep dive into Australia's NEM. Please check out the show notes for relevant links, information, and for details of how you can get in touch. Please let me know about what you think, about what either Andrew or I have to say. I'd love to hear from you. Righto, now for my conversation with Andrew Murdoch on the NEM, and we also chat briefly about electric vehicles toward the end of the conversation. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Andrew Murdoch from RK Energy, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Gene. Good to be here. Yes, uh, great to have you on. So you got in touch after a recent uh, episode where I was talking about EVs, and uh, I mentioned that, yeah, I'd really love to talk to someone who's familiar with uh, energy, with electricity, and uh, you got in touch, and yeah, it seems like you've got a great track record, great experience. Could you tell us about what RK Energy does and your experience, please? Yeah, sure. So RK Energy is an energy advisory firm. We're a small firm based here in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, We uh, help people develop energy projects. We help people solve strategic energy-related problems. Uh, We help people with decarbonisation and and developing strategies uh, to to meet their net zero goals or other other related goals. Uh, We do project management, project development, strategic engineering, owner's engineering, uh, et cetera, in the energy and infrastructure industry. Right. Um, So in terms of meeting their decarbonisation goals, are you advising them about what renewable energy options they've got? I mean, what sort of things would you be advising them? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess uh, a typical decarbonisation job will be a, uh, uh, for us, will be an industrial or mining uh, facility with a a significant energy consumption need. um, And we will look at what, what their energy consumptions uh, is, what their what their physical processes are, and and look for opportunities to either make better use of the resources that they're using, whether that's gas, coal, heat, uh, power, etc., uh, and then also look at opportunities for um, integrating renewables and other low carbon sources of energy into their into their processes. Right. Okay. Are there any examples of uh, clients you can talk about of jobs you've you've done? Yeah. So. Um, uh, one particular job uh, was a mining client. Uh, they um, uh, they uh, are developing a, a greenfield mine, a lithium mine over in Western Australia. Uh, they, um, uh, I guess, the, the the way that you would power a mine twenty years ago was with, you would just get a half a dozen big diesel generators and yeah. um, truck diesel to site, and, and away you'd go. Uh, these days, you look at uh, at some more complicated complicated processes. So you might uh, integrate some solar into the into the system. You might uh, you might also integrate some wind into the system. Uh, and certainly, batteries are are, uh, are very valuable for mine supplies now. Uh, mine mine power supply systems now because it allows you to if it allows you to run your your engines more efficiently. Allows you to have less engines, and it allows you to deal with. Um, uh, shocks to the energy system when a cloud goes over your solar farm yeah. or the wind stops blowing, et cetera. So those technologies that are available now um, are um, uh, 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 we're seeing those in in most um, mine supply power jobs that we're doing these days. Right, but would you typically have some 
diesel generators there just in case? Uh, yes. So, yeah, okay. yeah, so the yeah. system has to be robust enough to deal with a wet week or a, a week without rain yeah. uh, when the batteries can't recharge, uh, nighttime, evening peaks, et cetera. So, but we're seeing, um, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, in the studies we're doing these days, we're seeing uh, uh, renewable energy fractions going up to sort of the 60s and 70%, which is, which is fantastic and, and wouldn't have been achievable 20 years ago. On mine sites. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's good to know. I mean, what I want to chat about is this whole issue of integrating renewables into the system. And look, there's a lot of debate about this and there are people who are very pro-renewable. And I mean, I, I understand that, you know, we have to get there eventually. We need to decarbonise. I mean, I'm not arguing against that. But one thing I've been concerned about is just just how are we doing it too quickly? I think that's still that's a legitimate question. Uh, what are the risks to the system? We had this uh, situation earlier this year when the Australian energy market operator had to intervene in the national electricity market because uh, it looked like there were concerns about the reliability of supply. Could you tell us about that? What's your take on what happened there, Andrew? Sure. We might just rewind a little bit and yep. start with a little bit about how yep. the market works and the physics involved. It's an incredibly complex um, system, both both physically and uh, and commercially. So um, what we have essentially is a market that needs to match supply and demand almost instantaneously. We have very uh, it, it, it is. It's not possible to to store electricity as electricity. So even batteries are, are chemical storage, not not uh, not electrical storage. Um, and um, so there's a constant need to match supply and demand as accurately as we can. When demand exceeds supply, frequency goes down. Everything starts spinning a little bit slower. And when supply exceeds demand, the opposite happens. Everything speeds up a little bit. So so there's there's a, a constant need to match supply and demand. Right. So, I mean, what does this mean? Could this mean that it could damage some of our uh, equipment, our appliances connected to the grid? The system in Australia is very, it's very geographically um, dispersed. We have power stations that are in the regions and we have centralised demand in the major cities, capital cities, and also industrial cities like um, like Gladstone and Newcastle, Illawarra, um, for example. Um, and um, we need to manage the flows between the generation sources and 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 the and the loads without overloading a particular network element. So if we get too much power trying to flow through a particular part of the network, then we start to melt things. Um, and so the market has to manage that. Um, the, the the national electricity market, the NEM, um, uh, it was established just over twenty years ago, um, and so uh, it, uh, it it has the objective of supplying power in the most economically efficient way to the consumer, mm, yeah, without um, breaching any of the, the the technical constraints that it has to work with. Uh, so AEMO, the Australian Electricity Market Operator, operates um, a dispatch engine, NEM dispatch engine. Uh, and that dispatch engine takes bids from each of the generators, um, builds a bid stack uh, for each of them in each of the each of the NEM zones, that, and the NEM zones roughly correlate to each of the states. Um, uh, and then uh, then that that dispatch engine matches supply and demand and sets a marginal price based upon where the supply demand curve crosses. Right. So this bid stack, you're ranking the bids that come in. So uh, CS Energy or whatever. Or the other end generators, I'll say we will supply. What what is the bid in terms of? Is it megawatts? Uh, yeah, megawatts over a particular period. Yeah, so so the unit of the unit of sale is megawatt hour. So that megawatt hour. Yeah, one okay. one megawatt for 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 an hour. Um, but the the bids are done on um the bids are done every five minutes on the on a okay. megawatt megawatt basis. So. We will supply this much electricity at this price. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. Uh, and then uh, the the price is then set at the marginal the marginal uh, the marginal bidder's price, and and everyone everyone who get everyone who bids below the marginal bidder's price gets dispatched, and they and they they receive that price multiplied by their loss factor, and then anyone who bids over that price um, then doesn't get dispatched. Okay, so it's the the marginal bidder's price. So that's the that's the price that was offered by the bidder that they need the last bidder the marginal bidder. To make sure that the supply of energy matches the demand, correct? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And so everyone, all the, all of the 
energy supplied up to there, that all gets the market price. That correct. Yeah. Okay, correct. gotcha. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now the the bidders can bid anywhere between negative a thousand dollars and fifteen thousand one hundred dollars per megawatt hour. So there's quite a large range um, of permissible bids. Yeah. Uh, the reason for the negative bids is so that if you're a thermal unit, a coal plant, um, you have a large cost associated with coming offline um, and um, and coming back online. So you will accept um, uh, for short periods, you'll accept the cost of having to stay on and receive negative prices for your power. Uh, the purpose for the extremely high prices are there to provide an economic incentive to construct peaking plants. So a peaking plant might be something like a gas turbine that only runs maybe 2% of the year, 3% of the year. So it needs those extreme prices to be able to cover its costs for the rest of the year when it's simply on standby. In parallel with the physical market, there's also a contracting market, which is essentially an over-the-counter market where a generator and a retailer will, will enter into an agreement to swap exposure to, um, to, to, to the, um, the, the, the pool price. Um, so essentially, they're, they're, they're swap agreements um, that synthetically generates a fixed price netting out um, the generator's exposure with the, um, with the, buyer's, uh, the, the, the buyer's exposure. The larger gen tailors also tend to vertically integrate as well to, um, to manage their risk. So gen tailors, their generators and their retailers as well. Because we've got this, uh, yeah, we, we've broken up the market in, in Australia, haven't we? We've, got, we've split generators from distribution and from retailers. And once upon a time, they were all integrated, weren't they? We had these electricity boards. We had Southeast Queensland Electricity Board and, yeah. Yeah, so back in the nineties, yeah, the the um, the industry deregulated and yeah. and, um, and competition was introduced at a wholesale level, um, and um, and now we have you know, retailers competing for for our our our, uh, our our retail contracts, and then we have the wholesalers competing to supply to the um, to the retailers. So, Andrew, this is fascinating. We've got this complicated market where there's generators bidding in to supply electricity at particular prices and we've got these this wide band over which they can bid and there's a negative uh, there's a possibility of negative bids that's something we're seeing more of lately we're seeing these negative prices and that might strike people as very strange why are we seeing negative prices it'd be good to just sort of chat about that in a minute but also you mentioned that it could go up to what was it 15,000 a megawatt hour but what happened recently was that they said no bids over what was it three hundred dollars a megawatt hour? Yeah, that's that's correct. That's correct. So I might I might go through what happened in early yes, June. Please, it's, be a, good. It's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a fascinating it's a fascinating story. So so it all it all began when uh, Russia uh, was demanding payment for their gas in rubles, and um, that uh, Shell and Orsted and others refused to comply, and Russia then made significant cuts to to gas supply into Europe, which then Obviously, had an impact on the uh, the global LNG prices, uh, and because most of the East Coast, Coast gas uh, is um, is connected to the LNG market through the the LNG plants in Gladstone, we, we've seen netback prices on the East Coast go up as well. So, um, if I reflect back to sort of 2011, 2012, we had a spot price of, of gas that was largely following the cost of supply around five, six, seven dollars a gigajoule. Um, in uh, in March, uh, sorry, in, in June, uh, we saw prices ranging from between fifteen and forty three dollars a gigajoule for gas. So quite a significant uh, increase over the over the cost of supply for for gas on the east coast. Right. So we're talking many multiples of cost of supply and multiples of yeah you know, many multiples of what it was trading at previously. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Meanwhile, we had a very wet summer. Um, and that wet summer had the impact of restricting coal supply. So, for example, Milmerin um, wasn't able to, to mine coal for a, a significant peri- period of time. Uh, and global coal prices also followed energy prices upwards, which yeah. made coal difficult to get and, and expensive. Uh, so, last time I checked, yeah, thermal coal was trading at around $400 a tonne, oh. which is, which is yeah. incredible. Now, concurrent with that, we had a third factor, which was that um, uh, a large number of plant was was out of service um, throughout um, throughout the, the country. Um, so we had outages at Araring, Bayswater, Loyang, Liddell, uh, and Calais Sea. 
Uh, I believe there was also an outage at Swan Bay Key at the same time as as well. So that was about 30% of the coal fleet was out of service in in, in June. Um, so um, we yeah. you know, had significant capacity taken out of the market. So one thing that's uh, brought up, and I don't know, I, I should be careful not to necessarily attribute this to, to Matt Canavan because I've had Matt on the show before. Matt's someone I, I chat with from time to time about these issues, and I'm try- hoping to get him on the program again. But it may have been Matt that said that, uh, look, they're just not investing in the this old coal-fired power generation because there's a push to decarbonise, there's all of this excitement about renewables and they're not doing the maintenance or they're not refurbishing the old coal-fired power generation capacity. Is that Do you know if that's true or do you have any views on that? I do have a view and I guess I, I take the view that um, – we're currently using a lot of coal in the country um, yeah. and it's great to decarbonise and it's great to reduce our reliance on coal, but it's not going to happen immediately. Yeah. Um, and my personal view is that there is a lot of decarbonisation to be gained simply by making coal plant more efficient and more reliable. Right. So I'm talking about things like, for example, um, reducing our reliance on Victorian lignite and transferring that to higher quality Queensland black coal. Um, will have a significant va- impact on um, on um, uh, on carbon emissions uh, just by the higher quality of the fuel being burnt. The other thing we can do that is, in my view, an easy win is is to transfer from 1960s, 1970s subcritical technology to 2020 ultra supercritical technology, or even better, integrated combined cycle gas turbine technology. Um, What's the difference? Is there an easy way to explain what the difference between those two different types of uh, that whatever it is, it depends on, it's a level of criticality or something. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. so so subcritical versus ultra-supercritical. So so essentially, if you imagine um, a a little uh, paper wind turbine that you perhaps made um, in primary school, for example, and you blow on it and and it spins. Now, the harder you blow on it, the faster it will spin and the more energy that it takes. Yes. So essentially, what we're trying to do in terms of making a steam turbine more efficient is to increase the pressure at at the steam turbine inlet. Um, so essentially, if the more the more energy we can put into the steam before it gets into the turbine, the hot, the, the more efficient the turbine will yeah. be. Um, now, the difference between subcritical and supercritical, um, interesting little point of physics, is um, that subcritical boilers the the, the pressure is, is relatively low, and we we heat up and boil water, similar similar to the way that that, that the kettle works yeah. at home. Um, we 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 boil boil water to make steam. A supercritical plant, um, so a supercritical plant, um, there's not a distinct boiling phase. We simply just heat it up and it gets thinner and thinner and that steam, because it's at such high pressure, has the properties of both a gas and a liquid at the same right. time. So okay. That's yeah. not so much. Re- it's not so much relevant to um, the physics of efficiency. It just has to do with how we design the boiler and the, and, um, right. and, and the, and the steam processes. And, okay, so it's good to know that that this technology that came out of the 19th century or possibly even before, uh, it, ha- it can be improved. And yeah, yeah. okay, that's yeah. good. Okay, um, and then the other dimension to to decarbonisation of coal generation is 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 carbon capture utilisation and uh, and storage. Um, yeah. And um, my personal view, and I know people have some very strong views on this, but my personal view is that there's more to be gained um, in, in carbon capture and storage. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, good, good. Uh, yeah, so back to June. And, and I guess the uh, the next factor that we have to consider was that, that June was unusually cold. So mm. uh, we had uh, the 9th of June, the low at Archerfield was 7.9 degrees against the June mean of 11.8 degrees. So it's not super cold, but just a little bit cold colder than usual uh, and that what that led for us all to do was at home turn on our air conditioners um yeah. and uh and and uh, in queensland on the 9th of june we reached a new um record maximum demand for q2 uh, for quarter two of um just over eight thousand megawatts which was 8.2 percent higher than the 9th of june of, uh, of 2021 and was this the day that they were warning that they might have to restrict supply, there might have to be blackouts in some areas. Correct. Yeah. 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 So that was when we got the loss of reserve notices. So from right. EMO. So, um, and so yeah. So I guess moving to that, um, obviously as that demand supply balance um, uh, started to um, started to move into the into the zone of scarcity, the prices went up uh, and hit the the market cap of 
$15,100 per megawatt hour um, uh, on a number of occasions. Uh, as I said, you know, that, that, that very high market cap is, is, an, is for our current market design a necessary factor to encourage investment in peaking plant. Um, however, there's a, there's a safeguard, there's a bit of a safety valve on the, on, the, um, on the system so that we're not exposed to $15,000 a megawatt hour for too long, and that's the cumulative price cap. So the cumulative price cap is just under $1.4 million, uh, and that's taken as the sum of the price in each of the five-minute periods over the seven days preceding. Okay. So, and essentially, what that does is it is it gives you a, a maximum exposure that that um, that, uh, that that for um, for energy buyers, and uh, on the rationale that okay, you've had fifteen thousand dollars for a little while, you've paid your operating costs for many years to come. That's enough. Yeah. Um, so, so, do we know? I mean, I don't don't expect you to to know it off the top of your head, but do we know which was the the plant? Or the bidder, the marginal bidder. Do we know who was the marginal bidder and what they were bidding into to meet the supply? Yeah, well, that that showed to meet the demand to, yeah. the pri- to provide the supply. Um, so yeah, that's publicly available information. Okay, that can be achieved, can can be um, obtained through AEMO. Um, now it changes for every five minute period. So yeah, okay. The, the, the so incremental bidder today <laughs> may be a different person to tomorrow. So there is a lot of data to get through um, to to identify that. And, and um, yeah, so but sometimes so sometimes it'll be renewables, will it? In the during the day, and sometimes it's coal, and sometimes it's gas. Do we know? Yeah. So a, a typical um, a typical Typical day, so back when when energy prices were normal. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah, the marginal the marginal operator during um, uh, during the middle of the day would be either coal or renewables, okay. um, depending upon depending upon how sunny it is or how windy it is. So on a on a sunny moderate day in April or September, you might find that that um, solar is is um, is the marginal bidder, um, and they may bid. Uh, uh, solar has a negative short run marginal cost because every for every megawatt hour of renewable energy that you produce, you also produce a large scale renewable energy generation certificate, which you can then sell for. 30 40 50 dollars a megawatt hour to um, to your retailer so that your retailer can meet their uh, renewable energy target obligations uh, or you might sell it to a um, to a customer who who would like 100% green power okay so yeah, so they have a negative a negative short run marginal cost and and um, can afford to operate um, with a with a negative spot price so they can bid into the NEM at a negative price so that they can Sell that power, and then they get this certificate, which means so it, this is a, a subsidy from the government. Is this right? Uh, it's it's a subsidy from the energy consumer. So yeah, okay, yeah. 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 So so our retailers are obligated to uh, to surrender a certain number of of um, renewable energy certificates based upon our consumption. Yeah, and we obviously pay for that through our uh, through our electricity bills. Gotcha. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yep. Yep. Then on a more more moderate day, the coal plant will be the marginal. The marginal bidder, yeah. um, and they typically have a short-run marginal cost in the order of anywhere between fifteen and thirty dollars a megawatt hour when energy yeah. prices are you know, normal. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, maybe not today. So um, uh, then in the evening, uh, you might see some of the gas plant come on, um, and again, sort of back to normal energy prices, they might have a short-run marginal cost somewhere in the order of eighty to hundred dollars a megawatt hour. So we've got we've got solar potentially bidding in negative. You've got coal. Coming in, sort of at a yeah, at a positive uh, level, and then gas at a, you know higher rate. They'd be bidding in during the evening. Yep, correct. Yep. Yeah, so you've sort of got those natural price bands that fit around short run marginal costs. Now, um, then you can sort of add to that an element of um, profit maximization. So, yeah. um, uh, so to to actually obtain those high prices, you might not bid all of your volume at your short run marginal cost. You might reserve some of it to try and encourage the price up a little bit higher. So, um, yeah. So, um, or to, you know, to essentially, you know, your goal is profit maximization. And if you're a, if you're a gas plant and you've got so many terajoules of gas to burn every evening, you're going to try and, um, uh, bid them into the network at, at, at a, um, at a price where, Essentially, you're, you're going to use up all your gas for the maximum amount of revenue that you can possibly obtain in that evening. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they're being strategic about when they bid into the market to maximise their their profits. And okay, so 
if we go back to to June, so there was you, you talked about this cumulative price cap, and did did that kick in in June? Did it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, so the cumulative price cap kicked in, um, and uh, and what what that did was um, uh, forced AEMO to to cap the spot price to three hundred dollars a megawatt hour. So so we ended up going from a a uh, the market operating as it normally would to a, a strict three hundred dollar cap. So, which which sounds okay. However, um, the price of gas was forty dollars a megawatt hour. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon. The price of gas was forty dollars a gigajoule. Yeah. Now, the short run marginal cost of a gas turbine is approximately ten times its gas price. Okay. So, yeah. so essentially, a megawatt hour of for a gas turbine to produce a megawatt hour of um, of electricity, it will it will consume um, it will consume ten gigajoules of, of gas. Um, so, so forty times ten is obviously four hundred dollars. Um, yeah. So, um, if you're a rational operator of gas turbines, you're not going to be dispatching um, at a cost of four hundred dollars to um, to only receive three hundred dollars in revenue. So, um, so the gas turbine operators um, rationally withdrew capacity, um, which was which was not in itself sounds like a, a selfish thing to do. They needed to do that to allow AEMO, AEMO to issue a lack of reserve notice. Um, which um, then allowed AEMO to force the gas turbines back online. So without that lack of reserve notice, they wouldn't have been able to um, to to order the gas turbines back online, which is which is what they did. Um, so they essentially they intervened in the market. They said, "You you've got to supply this. We will direct you to supply this into the market." Correct. So the mar- and this is why people at the time were saying the market has essentially failed. And I mean, is that a fair thing to say that, look, the national electricity market, as it was originally designed, is no longer fit for purpose? I mean, if, if you've got a situation where the the operator has to intervene and essentially take over and go into command and control uh, central planning style, is that does that mean the whole system has failed and we need to start it again? Look, I, I think I think um, I, I, I think it's a bit harsh to say that the market has okay. failed. The market has operated extremely well for for over twenty okay. years, and yep. and um, uh, and uh, has you know, has has done an excellent job of of, of balancing supply and demand and uh, and you know facilitating yeah. private investment into the into the market, um, and um, and and I guess you know modernising beyond you know state controlled power systems. Uh, yeah. It's done an excellent job. It's not perfect though. Yeah, um, yeah. And we have this uh, situation, um, this extreme situation of, of four um, unusual uh, events that happened that, that was not foreseen. Um, what was foreseen was that um, these types of events will happen um, and therefore we give, we have the cumulative price cap to act there as a safety valve um, to, um, to, to allow AEMO to, to intervene and suspend the market when, it, when it's appropriate. So um, yeah, so after um, a week uh, of um, of regulated uh, three hundred dollar megawatt hour cap, um, then um, AEMO suspended the market and then set the price um, based upon um, previous bidding behaviour. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that was essentially essentially just to give time for people to go and have a few deep breaths and uh, and uh, and um, re reset reset themselves and um, reset uh, how how they were going to bid. Um, in the same way that you know, in the share market, for example, a company might say, "Okay, we need to have a market. We need to to, yeah. to suspend trading of our shares because we're dealing with this issue or we're dealing with that issue." Um, and you know, every system has crises from time to time, and it is appropriate to suspend markets from time to time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point. Um, now, it it looks like it was a close run thing. We didn't end up having blackouts. Which was good. I think they had some big industrial users reduce their demand quite substantially, didn't they? Um, but yeah, we did avoid blackouts of residential areas. I mean, I was concerned that and I thought, God, what a terrible night because it was very cold at the time. Like, what if you couldn't run your heater? Uh, that would be awful. So, do you think could this happen again? I mean, how concerned should we be about this? Or do you think that the people running in the people in AEMO, the people in the other uh, agencies that are, are uh, overseeing energy policy, do they have this under control? Do you, how concerned should we be, Andrew? 
Well, I think look, I think it's important to to, to note that we didn't have load shedding, and yeah. and and uh, you know, aside from some um, some negotiated um, reduction of industrial load, um, AEMO were able to keep the lights on, and and the market participants were able to keep the mar- lights on. So, so that in itself is is a you know, it's a tribute to, to the to the people involved that hey, we you know we can as a as an industry collaboratively you know do our job <laughs> during, yes. during during yes. these extreme extreme periods. Now, I guess. Um, could the factors happen again? Could the could we be, find ourselves into a in in a situation where AEMO has to has to suspend the market again? Or well, well, the answer is yes, because if you look at the four the four factors, um, could we have very high gas prices again? Well, 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 yes, they haven't gone down. Um, prices are still still expensive, and yeah. uh, Nord Streams dropped to uh, dropped to, uh, to 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 no deliveries into Europe, um, and you know the headlines coming out of Europe are, are more and more. Um, uh, exciting um, as, from day to day, uh, particularly as we move into the European into the European winter and into our our summer, which is our our yeah. period of peak peak demand. Yeah, very concerning. Yeah, um, I feel that we're globally underinvested in gas exploration. Um, we we have very long lead times for for project development from exploration all the way through to production is you know many many years. Um, there's a reluctance by governments, policymakers, insurances, insurers, and banks to support. Hydrocarbon projects, um, uh, and so yes, I think gas high gas prices will happen again. Where would that be? That exploration is Australia one of the prime places you'd be exploring for oh. for gas? Oh, look, a- absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, so as a yeah, I, I think um, you know we've seen we've seen um, moratoria on on gas exploration in Victoria and uh, and New South Wales, which has, has reduced yeah. supply into into uh, in, into the Australian East Coast grid. Um, there's certainly a lot more gas in in Queensland that that can be developed um, over over time. So mm. um, so yeah, there's 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 uh, there's a lot there that we have uh, we can we can contribute there. Yeah. Likewise with coal, um, I, I, I don't see um, I don't see global coal prices restoring to levels that we've seen in the past. Um, I don't think they're going to stay at four hundred dollars a ton for no, now. No. But, um, yeah. uh, but uh, like gas, um, you know, there's a reluctance, an even greater reluctance to to develop and approve yes. um, coal projects, um, uh, notwithstanding that. Um, Globally, we've consumed as much coal in the last 12 months as we've ever consumed, and that's a reflection of increasing energy demand from uh, developing economies um, who are, you know, building coal-fired power stations. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Right. So what about this concern about renewables? Is there a big challenge integrating them into the grid? Does that make the grid more unreliable uh, if we don't have the the backup, the storage capacity? And it looks like we don't at the moment. We've got coal-fired power stations. They're going to be progressively shutting down over the next couple of decades. How confident are you we can manage that transition? Uh, and if... You know what are the what are the things we need to do to make sure it goes well and we don't end up with uh, with load shedding with blackouts from time to time. Yeah, so so renewables are are, are complex, um, and um, the obvious thing to say on renewables is that you know solar doesn't work when the sun's not shining and wind doesn't work when the wind's not blowing. The challenge for us, um, I guess, the the the, uh, the key challenges is number one accessing the resource, number two matching supply and demand. Making sure that we've got the transmission infrastructure in place to connect the generation to the to the um, to the load center, noting that the generation is going to come from or is coming from different places to where it has come from in the past, um, uh, and then um, you know dealing with storage. Uh, so I, I guess um, to 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 develop a system where we have the equivalent of baseload power 
from renewables, you've first got to generate the power. Yeah. Then you've got to store it. Then you've got to dispatch it. So you've got three elements um, where we where we would once have had one. So so it is it is quite quite complex. Um, I guess in terms of accessing the resource, and there's a there's a a, a lot of um, really good work being done. If you look at the the growth statistics in solar and wind over the last um, five years, has been fantastic in terms of the 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 um, the number of megawatts that, that has been added to the grid. It's still it's still not easy to develop these projects. Um, you've got landholder interests to deal with. You've got the interests of traditional owners. You've got community interests and, and expectations. Um, uh, some people love wind farms. Some people don't. Um, and we each have a different different view uh, on that. Uh, and competing competing land use uh, is is uh, is another another issue. So m- moving moving through that. Um, I guess you know uh, land land acquisition and development approval and environmental approvals uh, is is complicated for for um, for renewables projects. They are land intensive projects, and so and so therefore therefore complicated from a renewals p- perspective. In um, matching supply and demand, um, we have very limited opportunities for baseload renewables. There's obviously hydro, but between Snowy and and Tassie Hydro, we've, yeah. we've pretty much tapped all of the hydro resources that we have in the in the country. Uh, there's a little bit of biomass, um, uh, uh, particularly uh, integrated with sugar mills. Um, I think we can make better value out of waste to energy projects. Um, uh, so that is using the energy in in waste to to uh, to generate to generate power. And uh, we're going to need to 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 develop massive massive amounts of storage to to cover an average 24 hour load cycle. So yeah. so pumped hydro. Large battery projects, uh, and we're working on on uh, on a very large pumped hydro project and two very large battery projects um, that will you know, contribute to um, to uh, contri- contribute to solving some of these problems. Yeah, do you have any uh, thoughts on what this ba- the future with batteries will look like? Will will we all have to have something like the Tesla Power Wall at home? Will there be larger batteries uh, on street corners? I mean, how is this going to How's it going to play out? What are your thoughts on where the technology is at at the moment, where it's going? Uh, yeah, are we actually going to have the te- the the improvements, the technological improvements that we need? I mean, I remember reading, might have been in Bill Gates's book on uh, on the climate change challenge, and I think he was saying we need some you know multiple improvement in the efficiency of batteries. Like I don't know if it was twenty x, it was some big number in that we need to improve batteries by. Yes, yeah, so I think I think we're going to see a, a, a mix of projects, and and we're working on some very large projects, gigawatt scale battery projects, um, and um, and these these batteries are of two hour duration, so they'll they're they're really there. Uh, these projects are really designed to harvest solar energy generated during the middle of the day, store it, and then put it back onto the grid in the evening, um, and essentially dealing with that dealing with that peak load. Um, I think you'll see uh, you'll see a lot of batteries at uh, at a at an industry level as well. Uh, we'll see projects um, uh, on the fringe of grid utilise batteries uh, a little bit more. So, for example, a mine that is in an outback community that might be supplied by a a long skinny transmission line that doesn't quite have the capacity to to serve the mine. So the mine will put a battery in. Trickle charge the battery during the day, and then use that battery to um, use that battery to cover the peak demands that the that the mine might have. Uh, they might also integrate their own solar in there as well to um, to self generate a little bit. So, uh, so so we are seeing a, a lot of um, you know batteries within industry there for um, for energy management. Also helps with things like peak demand tariffs and and um, and other related energy costs. Um, We'll also see uh, batteries at a household level um, participate as as virtual power plants. So essentially, what happens there is that you'll you'll go and have a, a battery that that you'll install in your house, and your retail supply agreement will allow your retailer to control your battery, and that will allow your retailer to use your battery capacity to um, to trade a little bit of energy. Um, they'll they'll harvest the harvest the solar from your roof, and then dispatch. Dispatch it to your house, and then whatever's whatever the unders and overs are, they can then trade um, onto the grid. Um, so I think we'll, I think we'll see them at, 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 at all all levels, at, at wholesale level, at, at large industrial level, and also at at, um, at the household level. Right? Can we talk about that gigawatt battery? That sounds fascinating. I mean, a gigawatt's obviously a huge amount of energy. So, what would that actually power? Uh, do you, do you know? I mean, uh, I mean, I guess you. You could estimate it based on household electricity use, but are we to, 
Like what sort of sized town are we talking about? So to put it into context, the 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 peak peak demand in in Queensland is somewhere between eight and ten thousand gigawatt hours. Uh, sorry, let me start that again. So to put it into context, um, the peak demand in in Queensland is somewhere between eight and ten gigawatts um, during during high high demand. So so essentially, it could you know contribute you know, uh, roughly ten percent of the the peak demand um, it, to to the state. Right. So that's now this is going to be imprecise because industrial use is a, a big part of demand. But ten percent of Queensland, so we've got about five million people. So that's about yeah, that's five hundred thousand people. So we're talking, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a city, right? That's a reasonable size city. I mean, yeah. I mean, we don't have any. I mean, Gold Coast, for example, five hundred thousand people, right? So that's a big battery then. That's impressive. Yeah, it, it is a big battery. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that's the sort of thing we'd be we'd we'd be looking at. We're looking at large batteries uh, to back up the grid and so without naming names it, it looks like the people who are sort of involved in this the the companies involved in this are looking at options like this yeah ab- absolutely yeah i mean uh, investors look for opportunities to solve a problem and and you know that's 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 how capitalism works of course is that is that you uh, you know you you add value to the community um, by by solving a problem and and you get paid for it so you know we we have some some very smart Clients who uh, who who uh, who can identify these types of opportunities and and um, and deploy their capital to, to to solve them. Okay, because they know they can store the energy in the battery and then sell it into the grid when it's needed. Correct. Okay. Well, one thing I forgot to ask was about um, if you've still got time. I, I know I've, I've taken. Yeah, no, that's right. Just keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. This is so <laughs> fascinating. Uh, do we need something like a capacity mechanism in the national el- electricity market to to keep this coal-fired power and gas-fired power online? Because one of the complaints I hear is that with the way the market's been set up and these uh, these certificates that mean that renewables can get bid in at negative prices, this undermines the viability of the coal-fired and the gas-fired generation. But we actually need them from time to time to be able to provide that, was it peaking, to, to do the peaking, to provide that yeah. that uh, that energy when we really need it. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, we don't specifically need coal or specifically need gas um, to provide that firming um, capacity we need dispatchable power, and and traditionally we've gotten that from from coal sources and yeah. from gas sources. So, so um, it's not so much that we we need we need coal or we need batteries or we need gas or we need pumped hydro. We need something yeah. um, that will provide that that um, that uh, that peaking capacity. Then, if you overlay a climate change lens on it progressively over time, we need the carbon intensity of that capacity to reduce. Yeah. Um, so. But back to your question about um, do we need a capacity mechanism? Um, it's hard to see a market restructure being able to address the combination of geopolitical, meteorological, and physical issues that were were present in early early June. Those four factors still would have been there, irrespective yeah. of what the what the the um, the the um, what the market structure was. Um, I, I think there are some tweaks we can make to the. Um, to the system, for example, um, that market cap of fifteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour, perhaps that should integrate down once it's hit the cap a few times. As you integrate it down over time, so that the cumulative price cap is not um, is, is 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 never um, is, is never uh, is never exceeded. And I think if you took a, a control systems engineering view to to um, how that price cap um, oper- operates, um, you could put a feedback system in there that has it. Integrate control down to a um, uh, to a, an equivalent of that um, of that uh, price cap, which is averages out at about eight hundred dollars a megawatt hour. So, which is you know good money if you if you're um, okay. If you're operating okay, I think I understand so, what yeah. you're saying. So you're you're saying that maybe don't let it get up as far as fifteen thousand, or maybe once, but then start scaling that, like just start reducing that, so that they're still getting the high prices when the the market really needs energy but they don't get such high enough prices that it ends up exceeding that cumulative cap which means that AEMO has to intervene and yeah Cor- okay cor- correct yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Now we we also have another a, a few other let's call them quasi capacity mechanisms that are in the system already, and that as I say that that fifteen hundred dollars uh, sorry fifteen thousand dollars a megawatt hour is a significant incentive to to make sure that you're well invested in in peak yeah. capacity. Um, and and those that weren't lost a lot of money. So um, uh, the the other the other thing we have is we, we we do have the the contract market on the side. So you know if you're an energy retailer, you can go and contract with a with a power station to um, uh, to provide you um, to provide you with with coverage. And essentially, they're providing a, a physical swap. So every time that that the pool price goes up, they will generate on your behalf, and and you'll swap that exposure. Um, so, so that's a you know that's a, a non let's call it a voluntary capacity market that that already exists, um, and AEMO also has the reliability and emergency reserve trader, um, and that's a, a short term mechanism that whenever AEMO feels that the um, based upon it's more than just feeling it's based on some some very sophisticated uh, modelling that the um, uh, that the probability of unserved power exceeds 0.002%, then they're able to go and contract with um, generators to, um, to to provide emergency power um, during a particular period, yeah. um, and that led to some uh, some temporary generators being um, being installed in various different locations around the country um, over the, over the past few years. Um, temporary generators are they? Diesel generators are they? Oh, they could be diesel or could be gas. So um, right. yeah, so you can you can go to GE and and order some trailer mounted thirty megawatt trailer mounted gas turbines. Um, and uh, there's fleets oh, of yeah. these. There's fleets of these owned by hire companies that that go around the world and uh, and uh, and plug holes in in power systems here and there. So ah, very good. Okay, yeah. So we were chatting about the capacity mechanism, and uh, I think you were saying that. It, it's not going to solve all the the problems that uh, that could um, that could arise, which would which would cause which would cause issues. Uh, so, I mean, what what do we need to do? Do you have any thoughts on what needs to happen with the NEM? So, I, I guess reflecting on the events of June, um, more energy would have been handy. So, it was a cost of energy issue that that created these extreme prices. So. Whether that energy came from renewables or from gas or from coal, any additional gigajoules or megawatt hours generated onto the system would have had downwards pressure on prices and, and, and certainly would have helped. Um, as I say, there's a couple of tweaks you can do to the, um, you can do to the, uh, to the, to the, the rules to perhaps prevent um, yeah. uh, uh, the, the cumulative price threshold ever been um, ever been breached, and that's just a that's just a function of mathematics. Oh, that was what we were talking yeah. about before. Co- yep. Correct. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Looking forward, um, we've got eight point three gigawatts of coal plant scheduled to be taken out of the market between now and twenty twenty nine. It's late. 2022 now, um, so that's a, a lot of uh, a lot of firming capacity needs to be uh, developed in that time frame. If I look at um, the various different committed projects that are that are in the system at present, I only get that that only adds to 1.32 gigawatts of um, of dispatchable generation required to cover that 8.3 gigawatts of retiring capacity. So. So there is a bit of a deficit there in terms of project um, firming projects that are um, available. Um, now more projects will be be committed between now and then, and those projects I mm. mentioned before aren't included in that 1.3 gigawatts. Um, but you know these these projects we're working on are in their development phase. Development phase for projects is is um, is, is is very long, takes many years. Um, there's uh, a um, uh, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, some of them necessary, some of them not so necessary. So um, it's a bit like the argument in in house prices and and housing demand is it you know is is, is extreme house pricing uh, being caused by a, 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 um, the the um, complexity and speed of approvals, or are there other factors at play? Yeah. Per- personally, my my view in in power is that um, uh, we could we could certainly work a lot faster in terms of bringing these projects uh, on onto the onto the grid if the approvals process wasn't so bureaucratic and slow. Um, now I I think it should still be thorough. Um, we certainly uh, we certainly want to have a thorough EIS process and a thorough technical review of um, of the contribution that that these plants um, uh, have on the grid. Um, 
uh, but I think there's a lot we can do to make it a lot more efficient and perhaps um, remove duplication and um, yeah and uh, and yeah you know, I guess add a little bit of um, I want to say common sense, but that's not quite the right word um, for it. But we do maybe we- a sense of urgency among some of these uh, regulatory agencies. So you you mentioned the EIS environmental impact statement, and I guess yeah, trying to respond to the environmental issues that that's obviously a major part of the whole process. Um, trying to satisfy the environmental regulator that you're not going to damage the environment. You've got a plan. Like if there's a particular, there's fauna that's threatened, you've got a plan to manage that. So, yeah. Yeah, it's essentially, yeah. And and I, and I guess, you know, to be fair to, this is not just one one agency that yeah. that, 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 that could improve. We see it across all all. All agencies. Um, the the um, uh, I guess there's a there's a desire for perfection. Um, that that um, uh, whether whether it's a whether it's a, a technical approval or a, or a planning approval or, or a um, uh, or, or you know the traffic or, or whatnot. Every each of the departments come um, wanting to to see a, a level of perfection in every every area, and and sometimes it's just not practical. Yeah. Okay. I'll. I'll put something to you, and I'd be interested in your reaction. I'm looking at what's happening with energy in Australia at the moment, and I see we need all of this firming capacity, or we need to be able to back up the grid because we're bringing in all these renewables. We've got coal-fired power leaving the system. And, I mean, I look at this, and I'm very worried about whether we're actually going to have sufficient power in Know, five or ten years' time, I'm really worried about the reliability of the system, uh, and partly that's because I'm concerned that we've promoted renewables into the system at a very high rate, like faster than the system can can handle it, and not in conjunction with the storage. And we've done that for well, we, I mean, I think you know the people are doing it for reasons that. Uh, you know, I think they they think they're doing the right thing because this is for the environment, is to tackle climate change. But I'm worried about what that means for reliability of power in five or ten years, and what that'll mean for prices. How worried should I be? Am I just am I overly concerned? Am I too concerned? Or is that am I being irrational? Am I being biased myself in in analysing this issue? Um, yeah. So I, I think we can't oversimplify. Or we shouldn't be oversimplifying the debate. Okay. Um, we are talking about complex physics and complex economics, and um, whether it's in the media or in politics, there's these oversimplifications of the answer is X. Um, and depending upon what your political view or your commercial view is, you will put whatever noun you yeah. want after the answer is um, to, to, uh, to suit your needs. I, I try and take a, a balanced view. Um, uh, now, in terms of um, you know, should we be worried at a technical level? Um, so I'll get back to those numbers again. There's 8.3 gigawatts being retired from the fleet between now and 2029. Um, so we've been through um, an incident where essentially, you know, it was more of an energy-related issue than a capacity-related issue, but capacity wasn't far behind. Um, so we uh, we have kind of almost just enough right now. Okay. Um, so when we retire 8.3 gigawatts and we increase peak demand because peak demand continues to grow year on um, and we want in, you know we want to continue to to industrialize and we want to continue to grow the population and grow the economy and there's a strong correlation between energy consumption and, and GDP. Um, uh, so um, that um, yeah, that that uh, that margin is probably going to go negative, um, and so we should yeah we should certainly be prioritising firming capacity. Um, and as I said you know, previously, whether that firming capacity comes from batteries, from gas turbines, uh, from pumped hydro is is somewhat somewhat irrelevant. Um, uh, as that there's probably still a role for coal to play, um, but it gets a little bit harder for for um, for coal plant to um, to provide provide firming in terms of um you know should we be worried um about um capacity in the future that's uh, the answer is yes mm. and i'll just scroll down here to have a look i was reading over the weekend the um aemo's um uh um 
electrical statement of opportunities, which essentially is a forecast of um, of demand um, that um, uh, that they use to to inform the market. So they're forecasting that the reliability standard will be breached if there's no further investment. Um, that the reliability standards will be breached in in New South Wales in 2025, yeah. um, and then Victoria in 2027. Uh, and Queensland and South Australia shortly thereafter. Um, mm. However, if the if AEMO's recommendations in the integrated system plan, which is AEMO's map of the projects that they feel should be progressed, yeah, um, then that, that situation improves a little bit. We we don't see the um, reliability standard being breached in in Victoria until 2027-28 and then um, New South Wales 2029-2030. But again, linked to coal plant retirements. So. Yeah. I'll have to look at this integrated system plan. What are they What are they saying in that? Are they saying you, these, these are the investments that are needed in uh, what capacity and in, in storage and distribution? Yes. So, so it, it deals. It, the integrated system plan deals with the transmission network more so oh, okay. than the, yeah. more so than the generation network. They do look at um, where they believe the 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 more um, the the better renewable energy zones are on the grid, and um, yeah. and that informs a lot of the the infrastructure. So so that allows them to forecast where the energy is going to be coming from in future years. So it's essentially feed into the regulated process. So once AEMO identify a project, um, that then allows the network service providers, so the power links, the transgrids, um, to start the regulatory investment process, which then allows them um, to to invest in these in these upgrades. But yeah, the time frame between you know AEMO um, raising a project in the in the ISP and then a, 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 a a network service provider to actually construct and commission a plant is, you know, many, you know, five, ten yeah. years in, in in the making. So, um, so these 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 are big infrastructure projects that take a long time to to develop and construct. Good one. I'll check that out. I'll check out this ISP and put a link in the show notes. One thing that one thing that's occurred to me is that I mean, one one possible way to avoid this this deficit that you've you've described is, well, we just don't retire these coal-fired power stations. We keep some of them open or longer than uh, is intended or was initial, longer than AEMO thinks that, um, or the companies themselves think they will be currently be kept open for. But what that might mean is that's where that capacity mechanism could, could be useful, possibly, but then that means that we'd be paying them just to have the generation uh, available if it's needed, and that's why there are accusations that a capacity mechanism would be coal keeper. Have you heard that? Yeah, I've, cer- I've certainly heard the, the, the coal keeper, you know, the coal keeper <laughs> slogan. Um, yeah, look, it's it's interesting, uh, I, and I'd have to think about that a little bit more as to would a, would a capacity credit encourage a coal plant to stay open more so than the current market structure? Um, I guess the economics of ongoing operation of, of a coal plant. On one hand, you've got back to a world where energy prices are quote unquote normal. Yeah. Um, on one hand, you've got a very low cost of operation and you've got yeah. 24-7 production. So, you know, you're, you, it's true base load and the volumes are higher. Um, uh, on the other hand, you've got ongoing refurbishment costs. So I think Calide spent one hundred and thirty million dollars or so on on the refurbishment of uh, one of the B units um, recently yeah. um, you know that's a lot of money um, and um, uh, so you know that that's and that will keep that that plant operating for another you know, five years for argument's sake um, so it's always it's always that economics of you know when you work between major overhaul cycles, then yeah, you, know, you keep going until the, until you hit the next major maintenance event, oh, and then and then and then you make a gotcha. decision: do I spend a hundred million dollars upgrading, um, you know, refurbishing economizer tubes or or whatnot, um, or do you um, or do you at that stage retire the plant? Okay, okay. Look, I better only ask one more question because I've kept you here <laughs> so long because this is fascinating, and I really liked the point you made about how look, let's not. Look at this simplistically. It's too easy just to uh, come up with some simple diagnosis of what's going on. And as economists, we like to do that because we like to cut through the complexity. We like to have a 
a, a simple, elegant model of what's going on. But I understand, yep, you've got to think about the physics and uh, of this as, as well as the economics. That makes uh, perfect sense. My final question is about EVs. Uh, are we ready for EVs in the network? Will we be able to provide the power? Will we be able to provide the necessary charging infrastructure? And one thing I should I'm interested if you've got any thoughts on it, is how can EVs help us have a smarter grid? Because I've seen that in, I think it's in California, is there a company that lets people who have EVs, they can have that use them as a bit of a mini, as a battery, and then they can they can even start selling power to other people. I don't know if you've seen that sort of thing. So if you could just talk about EVs, yeah, uh, sure. please, so, that'd so be I, great. I just want to go back to the, the, oh, okay. the, 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 the complex physics and complex economics. I just want to make one other point there. There's also an ecological impact as well. Is sure, that, yeah. Is yeah. that every choice we make, it has an impact on cost, it has an impact on reliability, but it also has an impact on carbon emissions. So True. it's balancing the three and the three issues are all complex. So back to EVs. Yep. Um, so... Um, so, so yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, and, um, uh, and obviously you've had a couple of guests over the last couple of weeks who have had some, some interesting things, uh, to say on EVs. Um, but yes, so there, there are, there are companies who are, um, uh, are planning on using the battery capacity, um, in your EV as part of that virtual power plant, um, mechanism that I was talking about before yeah. with a, a battery on, on the wall is that you can also extend that by plugging in your EV and allowing them to use that charge. So yeah. maybe... You'll come home from 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 work. You'll drive into your garage in the about this time of evening. That's it's six p.m. here in yep. in. Uh, uh, so you might come home uh, and and plug in in the evening, and you might still have you know eighty percent of your battery charge there. So the the your retailer might use that to cover um, peak demand during the evening um, uh, rather than drawing from the grid. And then later in the night, when peak demand goes off, it will and and power prices get a little bit cheaper. Maybe the wind starts blowing a little bit. Um, then your your retailer will then fully charge your your car. So the next morning you get up and and um, yeah. unplug and, and away you go to work and you don't even know that it's happened. Um, so 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 yeah. So these kind of things um, uh, can be um, uh, can be done. I, I, I noticed um, I was reading I was on LinkedIn I think um, this morning. Uh, the the Teslas in in California um, over the last couple of days have been setting. Uh, people will go home and and the, the Tesla comes up on the on the the Tesla display. Um, you know the California grid is about to experience peak demand. You might like to charge your car mm. later in the later in the evening, and and the Tesla system has a, yeah. a, a an ability for you to time to you essentially tell it when you want to leave, and it will optimize yeah. the charging um, process a to maximize battery life, and also to um, minimize power cost and and um, impact on the grid. Uh, but I guess in terms of physical impacts, um, look, if we all go home in the evening and plug in our EVs um, in the evening, then that's going to contribute to peak demand, and that's not going to be particularly helpful when it comes to reliability of supply. Yeah. But if we time the charging of the car to be a little bit later in the evening, two in the morning, three in the morning, um, and as I say, the Teslas can do it, and I'm sure the other EVs can do it as well um, with smart charging, then um, then the impact on the grid will be will be minimal because we're making better use of matching. You know, we're using the cars to to maximise um, supply and demand. Right. Based on so, how does it work? So are the you mentioned Tesla, so they're looking at what the the power price is, or they're getting a signal from the market, and they're saying, "Oh, look, you might you might want to charge later because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of demand for power at the moment, and prices are high." Yeah. So in the case of the California one, it was it was more around reliability. So okay. as I understand it, California is going through yeah. um, a situation that was similar to what we went through yeah. in June, um, where they're they're issuing lack of reserve notices, um, or whatever the Californian equivalent yeah. of a lack of reserve notice is, um, and so it's more so more related around. Um, uh, around system system reliability rather than rather than price, okay. um, but there's no reason why it couldn't also respond to price. Um, yeah, if it's integrated with the um, with your retailers. Um. Okay, that's that's cool. And just uh, finally, so yeah, so oh, I guess you answered the question. You're saying that if we do it intelligently, if there's some uh, if there's some way, whether possibly by IT, that I guess it would be via IT that. These things are charging at the right time during the night. They're not all charging when we get home. They're, they're delayed. Uh, then, uh, yeah, it's possible we 
we, well, we should be able to handle it in your view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that's not to say they won't have an impact. They will have an impact because it's more energy that the, that the power grid needs to provide. So yeah. if it is all coming from, from renewables, then that's more solar farms and more wind farms because we still have to produce more megawatt hours of energy. Um, uh, and and transmit them. Um, yeah, so so it all all contributes to load growth. And there will be there will be EVs that do have to be charged during the peak because I've just come home. Maybe I've driven home from a couple hundred kilometres away. Yeah. I've got two percent left in my battery, and in an hour's time, I've got to pick the kids up from school. So I've got to charge now. Um, yeah. So there will be a contribute contribution, but it won't be won't be everyone. Most of the time, for most of our daily cycling, we'll be able to charge during during periods when right. um, when when it's not peak demand. And do you think this will be done automatically? Will there be the the computer the in on the in the car, or and it connects to the grid, and then this will all be managed and coordinated across all of the EVs out there? And yeah, yeah. So so Arena did a study um, and. Um, they found um, that when people were just left to their own devices, people would come home and plug in. Yeah. And thirty percent of all charging happens during peak periods. Yes. Because that's when you come home. Um, if they uh, if they then ga- gave a ten cent per kilowatt hour incentive, this dropped ten percent. So people started thinking about it. I want to save some money. I, you know, mm. I want to save some money on my power bill. So I'm not going to. I'm going to program my car to not start charging until after peak period. Um, and then uh, if they handed over control of the charging to the retailer, then that peak demand use dropped to 6%. Yeah, so, gotcha. So automation is, is definitely the way. And and who wants to come home and think about, oh, what time should I charge the car? I, you know, yeah, exactly. Whereas if I can just plug it in and, and have have the AI work it out for me, um, and as long as I don't know, um, yeah, if I don't have to think about it, it's easy. So. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary. Okay, um, we've I think we've probably come to time because, yeah, we've had a, a great chat, Andrew, uh, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation and learned an incredible amount. So it's been incredibly valuable for me. Any final words before we wrap up? Oh, no, look, Thank you for the opportunity to talk. As I say, it's a it's a complex system. We're balance we're balancing uh, our contribution to climate change. We're balancing economic development. We're balancing physics. We're balancing reliability, uh, and we're balancing affordability. So it is it is it can't be oversimplified. Absolutely, I think that's a really good way to to put it. Andrew Murdoch, managing director of RK Energy. Thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks, Joan. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Goodbye.